everybody welcome to the 75th episode of our world news podcast this podcast along with all of our other news episodes are part of atlas news check out the lethal minds journal a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journal's bulletin from the borderlands a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash analyze educate Ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or analyze educate.substack.com. All those links can be found in the show notes below. We appreciate all the support that you guys give us. That being said, we'll head into the news. Okay, starting off here with a general news update. This is coming from HM Intelligence. A new study published by the International Monetary Fund theorizes that 60% of jobs in developed countries may be impacted by artificial intelligence in the future. That study believes that 30% of jobs will see a negative impact, while the other 30 will see a positive impact. Some of those negative impacts could include jobs going away altogether. In developing markets, 40% of jobs will be impacted, and in low-income countries, about 26% of jobs will be impacted. So I thought that was just an interesting story to share. Moving on to Europe and Eurasia, looking at the Russo-Ukrainian war, it has now been confirmed that Nathan Keener has been killed while fighting Russian forces in Ukraine. Keener was a U.S. Army veteran that volunteered for the Ukrainian International Legion in August of 2022. He served in the U.S. Army from 2013 to 2017 and 2019 to 2022. After that, he joined the Ukrainian International Legion. He he was killed in action on April 26th last year while trying to help a distressed soldier. The other plane that was allegedly hit was an A-50 early warning and control plane that is also known by its NATO reporting name, Mainstay. Those are also very valuable to Russia as the country has around 10 of those active. As of right now, we do not have concrete proof that one of these was shot down. However, an A-50 was up over the Sea of Azov at the time and did suddenly vanish from radar and stop responding to comms. Additionally, a Russian Su-30 pilot at the time reported seeing the fire and crash of an unidentified aircraft. Multiple high-level Ukrainian figures claimed the downing of the aircraft. This includes Commander-in-Chief General Valery Zeluzhny and the head of the Main Directorate of Intelligence, Lieutenant General Grilo Budanov. The downing of the A-50 was also confirmed by Russian telegram channel Fighter Bomber, which has deep ties to the Russian military aviation community. Moving on to Russia, this is also coming from HM Intelligence. Last week, the Federal Security Services, FSB, announced the arrest of a Russian citizen on the suspicion that he was providing sensitive information to Poland. The suspect worked at a secure facility for a state-owned company in Penza Oblast, he was allegedly attempting to pass information regarding his workplace to Polish intelligence. Poland's deputy foreign minister, sorry for this, Andrzej Zenia, claims that the story is fake news. Video published by the FSB shows NATO patches, the Polish constitution, and Ukrainian language books that they claim were found in the man's apartment. Authorities say the man is being charged with treason. Moving on, this is also coming from HM Intelligence. Clashes in the Republic of Bashkortostan erupted after an activist was sentenced to four years in a prison colony. 
Fel Aslinov was convicted of inciting ethnic hatred. Authorities say that he insulted migrants during an anti-gold mining demonstration. He allegedly referred to Central Asians and Caucasians as, quote, black people, which is considered derogatory. He denies all the allegations made against him. In the past, he has called Russia's military mobilization genocide against the Bashkir people, a Turkic ethnic group for which Bashkoristan is named after. He was also the leader of a group called Bashkort, which focused on cultural preservation. That group has actually since been banned as an extremist organization. Russia routinely silences opposition forces by hitting them with trumped-up charges meant to lock them away for years at a time in some far-off penal colony. That could be what we're seeing here. Protests broke out during and after his trial in the town of Baymak, near the border of Kazakhstan. Thousands showed up to these demonstrations in support of him, and after Aslinov was sentenced, protesters tried to block the roads leading to the courthouse, sparking clashes with riot police. Demonstrators and law enforcement personnel were injured. Authorities are investigating those that took part in the demonstrations and may slap them with charges of mass rioting, which can carry a 15-year sentence. Moving on, this is coming from Mac Millies on Instagram. A Russian officer from Rosgvardia, that's the Russian National Guard's naval component, has been sentenced to six years in prison for failing to protect the Crimean Bridge. Colonel Sergei Volkov, the former head of Rosgvardia's Naval Service Corps, purchased two Oriol Baipal anti-drone radars for 4.5 million U.S. dollars, the equivalent of that. Prosecutors claim that despite purchasing the radars, the bridge was still unprotected from Ukrainian waterborne suicide drones. This is because the radar systems were not designed to counter waterborne drones. Volkov claims that he purchased the drones to protect a Rosfordia unit, not the Crimean Bridge. Prosecutors asked the second Western military garrison court to give him seven years in prison. Instead, he got six. They also asked for Volkov to be stripped of rank and his awards, which the court did refuse. Although the court did grant Rosgvardia the ability to file a civil case against Volkov. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific region, Taiwan held its presidential election on January 13th. The ruling Democratic People's Party, DPP, candidate Lai Ching-te won 40% of the vote. KMT candidate Hu Yi received 33.5%. And the Taiwan People's Party candidate Ko wen received 26.4% of the vote. The DPP has now won the last three elections, which is a first in Taiwan's history since transitioning to free and fair elections. One thing that really saved the DPP was the fact that the KMT and the TPP decided to run separate candidates. The two parties explored the idea of running a joint ticket, but they could not agree on a candidate. So that's what probably really saved the TPP. For the legislative elections, no party won an outright majority of 57 seats or more. The KMT won 52, which is an increase of 14 seats from 2020. The DPP won 51 seats, a decrease of 10 from the last election. And the TPP won 8 seats, an increase of 3 from the last election. Two independent candidates won the remaining two seats. The KMT and the DPP are going to have to work with the TPP if they want to get anything done. In that regard, the KMT finding common cause at the TPP is more likely. Moving on to the Philippines, the armed forces of the Philippines have reactivated their counterintelligence group that is known as the AFP-CIG. This reactivation was led by Chief of Staff General Romeo S. Bronner Jr. 
The AFP-CIJ was first activated in 1989, but was deactivated in 1995. This reactivation emphasizes the rise in regional tensions, particularly between China and the Philippines, and the latter's military revitalization efforts. Moving on to Central Asia and the Middle East, looking at Iraq and Syria first on the 16th, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps claimed ballistic missile strikes and drone attacks in Erbil, Iraq, and in Aleppo, Syria. Sirens went off at the U.S. consulate in Erbil, but no U.S. government assets were targeted, even though CRAM systems were able to shoot down multiple drones. Iran says that it was targeting anti-Iranian elements that it blamed for the bombings in Kerman, Iran on January 3rd. We covered that in a previous episode. Those bombings killed nearly 100 people. In Erbil specifically, they claimed to hit a headquarters of Mossad, Israel's intelligence service. There's a serious question as to how legitimate those justifications are. In Erbil, missiles hit a home and killed five people. One of those killed was Iraqi Kurdish businessman Peshrar Aga Diazi. He was one of the richest men in Iraq, and the other four people killed were members of his family, including his 11-month-old daughter. The last time Iran hit Iraq with ballistic missiles was in March of 22, when they targeted the villa of a Kurdish oil tycoon, also claiming it to be a Mossad headquarters. As for Aleppo, the IRGC claims that they struck areas belonging to the Sunni Islamist armed group Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and the Uyghur-dominated Sunni Islamist group Turkestan Islamic Party. The statement claims that the ISIS-K militants that attacked Kerman were trained by HTS and the TIP. Moving on to Pakistan, on the 17th, the IRGC also launched missiles at Pakistan along the country's shared border. Iran says that they hit a headquarters of Jaish al-Adil, a Baloch separatist militant group that operates in Iran and Pakistan. Pakistan denounced the strikes, saying that they killed two children and that they were a, quote, blatant breach of Pakistan's sovereignty, end quote. Additionally, Pakistan recalled their ambassador from Iran and prohibited Iran's ambassador from returning to his post. Pakistan responded on the 18th by striking targets in Iran's Sistan and Balochistan province. Pakistan claims that it hit positions belonging to the Baloch groups that are currently at war with Pakistan. Iran says that nine foreign citizens were killed. This includes three women and four children. Pakistan's strikes marks the first openly known instance of a foreign country attacking Iran since 1988. Also on the 18th, IRGC Colonel Hossein Ali Javandafar was assassinated by an unknown gunman in the city of Iranshar. Iranian media claims that Jaish al-Auto took responsibility for the killing. Javandafar was assigned to the 110th Salman Farsi Special Operations Brigade. Moving on to the Israel-Hamas war, looking at reported casualties for Gaza, we have 24,620 killed. 61,830 injured for Israel. We have 1,410 killed. 8,787 injured for the Gaza operation. Specifically, we have 194 KIAs and uh, sorry, 937 wounded. Looking at the West Bank, we have 367 killed, 4,000 injured. In Lebanon, we have 196 killed. In Syria, we have 85 killed. And in Egypt, we have nine injured. That gives us a total of 26,678 killed. 74,626 wounded. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 79. The vast majority of those were Palestinians that have been killed in Gaza. That is 72. Additionally, four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists have also been killed. 
Major combat operations in the north have come to an end. The IDF maintains a presence in the entire area, although in recent weeks, some Israeli troops in the north have been sent back to Israel for R&R and training or just to uh, demobilize because a lot of these guys were reservists. Operations still continue in central Gaza and in the south around Khan Yunus, the second largest city. The IDF announced that operations around the city are being expanded. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah have continued. Not a whole lot to note on that front. Over 100 hostages are still being held inside Gaza. The IDF has provided an update regarding Sergeant Ron Sherman and Corporal Nick Bazar, two IDF soldiers taken hostage that were found dead in a Hamas tunnel in Jabalia on December 14th, along with civilian Aliyah Toledano. The families of the soldiers have been notified that the IDF did direct an airstrike close to the location of where their bodies were found. That airstrike was targeting the commander of Hamas's Northern Gaza Brigade, Ahmed Gondor. The IDF was not aware of any hostages in the area at the time when the strikes were conducted. However, their bodies showed no signs of trauma or indications of being hit by gunfire, meaning that they were likely not directly killed by IDF actions. The military has yet not been able to determine a cause of death, though. Toxicology testing may shed light on their deaths in the near future. Since October 17th, there have been at least 144 drone and rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. Of course, this is directly tied to the war. The Pentagon has confirmed 69 casualties so far. This includes 25 TBIs and at least one critical casualty. The U.S. military has launched eight response strikes. There has been one U.S. response for every 18 attacks. On the 18th, Iraqi militias claimed the shootdown of a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone over Diyala. Open sources show the wreckage consistent with an MQ-9. Iraqi security forces recovered the wreckage, but it isn't clear if it has been returned to U.S. authorities. Houthi rebels in Yemen have continued their activity in the region. There have been at least 40 attacks against commercial shipping and allied naval assets in the area since October 19th. The Biden administration finally decided to re-add the Houthis to the list of foreign terrorist organizations. The Houthis were delisted two years ago in an attempt to warm relations with Iran and make it easier for humanitarian aid to get into Yemen. Additionally, U.S. forces have continued unilateral strikes against Houthi targets in order to prevent war attacks. Houthi spokesman Mohammed Abdusalam confirmed that despite the terrorist group designation and U.S. strikes, the group will continue to attack commercial shipping and allied naval assets in the region. Due to the threats in the region, CNN reports that a growing number of insurers are refusing to insure American, British, and Israeli vessels in the Red Sea. The U.S. Department of Transportation is advising American merchant ships to steer clear of the southern portion of the Red Sea until further notice. And British oil company Shell Global announced that it would suspend all shipments through the Red Sea indefinitely. On the 15th, the spokesperson for the Houthis confirmed that the group will expand their targets to include American ships. This came after the Supreme Political Council declared all U.S. and British interests as legitimate targets. Also on the 15th, the Houthis did target and strike MV Gibraltar Eagle with a missile. The ship is U.S. owned and operated, and it was the first such ship to be hit since the attacks began in mid-October. On the 16th, Greek-owned bulk carrier MT Zagrafia was hit by a Houthi missile, causing no casualties. The ship was sailing with cargo, I'm sorry, without cargo, after dropping off cargo from Vietnam to Israel. On the 17th, the Houthis hit U.S.-owned bulk carrier MV 
Genko Bacardi with a suicide drone. An Indian Navy destroyer responded to the incident and rendered assistance to the vessel. The carrier took minimal damage and no casualties, and it was able to sail away on its own. Later that day, the U.S. Navy conducted a fourth round of strikes against a Houthis Tomahawk missiles launched from the Arleigh Burke class destroyer. I'm sorry, multiple destroyers in the area and an Ohio class destroyer hit 14 anti-ship missiles that were ready and prepared for launch. On the 18th, Houthis fired two anti-ship ballistic missiles at MV Chem Ranger. The tanker is Marshall Islands flagged, U.S. owned and Greek operated. The crew watched the missiles impact into the water, took no damage. Later on the 18th, U.S. forces conducted their fifth round of strikes, hitting two Houthi anti-ship missiles that were loaded and ready to be fired. On the 19th, U.S. Navy F-18s from the USS Eisenhower struck multiple Houthi anti-ship missiles that were prepared and ready for launch at the port of Al-Hudaida. This is the sixth round of U.S. strikes against the Houthis. Thank you to the infographic from Intel Skits on Twitter. U.S., British, and French forces have intercepted or struck seven anti-ship ballistic missiles, three anti-ship cruise missiles, six land attack cruise missiles, and 79 drones. Also, 18 anti-ship ballistic missile and two anti-ship cruise missile launch sites, three small boats, and one radar site. This is not an exhaustive list of all the targets struck and or intercepted. And when asked by a reporter if the strikes were working, President Biden said, quote, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Will they continue? Yes. And that's it. Got a Naval Forces posture update in the region. Thank you again to Intel Skits on Twitter for his infographics. The Israeli Navy has three corvettes near the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt has two warships off of its own coast. In the Red Sea, the Doi D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group is in the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. There are 12 ships in the Gulf of Aden under the framework of the Combined Maritime Forces. China has three ships in the Gulf of Aden. Iran has one ship in the North Arabian Sea. India has four ships operating in the North Arabian Sea as well. The British Royal Navy has four ships near Bahrain. And the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard have 15 ships in the Persian Gulf in the Gulf of Oman. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we're back with Africa and let's look at Somalia on the 13th. Two U.S. Navy SEALs went missing when they were conducting a boarding off the coast of Somalia. They were part of a force from SEAL Team 3 that was tasked with boarding a ship that was suspected of carrying Iranian-made ballistic missile components bound for Yemen. The first SEAL to go missing was knocked into the water by a large wave while attempting to board. The second SEAL jumped in to save the first, as is protocol. The SEALs were operating from the Expeditionary Mobile Base USS Lewis B. Polar. On board the vessel, they found Iranian-made propulsion guidance systems and warheads for Houthi anti-ship cruise missiles and medium-range ballistic missiles, as well as air defense components. The 14 crew members of the vessel were detained. The weapons components were seized and the boat was destroyed. The search for the missing two SEALs is still ongoing. Moving on to the America's Bulletin from the Borderlands released on the 15th. It's our first release of the year, and for the Americas, we covered the conflict 
in Ecuador. And then we also covered Senator Bob Menendez, the Democrat from New Jersey, catching new charges, new corruption charges. So that's two active cases against him right now. And that's what we covered. Looking at the U.S., got a presidential race update. These are poll averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 39. His disapproval is at 56. Both of those remain the same from last week. Trump's favorability is at 43%. His unfavorability is at 52. Both of those also remain the same. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 68%. He is down two points from last week. Marion Williamson is at 6%, and Congressman Dean Phillips is at 3%. Both of those remain the same. Looking at uh, Democratic polls in New Hampshire, that is the next upcoming primary elections to be held. It's actually just in a few days. Biden is anywhere from 49% to 69%. Uh, Dean Phillips is anywhere from 6% to 28%. And Marion Williamson is anywhere from 2 to 5%. Looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 65%. He is up five points from last week, and the Iowa caucuses probably has a lot to do with that. Nikki Haley is at 13%. She is up one point from last week. Ron DeSantis is at 11 He is down one point. So Nikki has officially taken over DeSantis, and uh, yeah, it's not, not looking great for DeSantis right now for sure. Uh, looking at the Republican polls in New Hampshire, Trump is at 48%. Nikki Haley is at 34%, and DeSantis is at 5%. The Iowa Republican caucuses were held on the 15th. Former President Donald Trump won the caucuses, no surprise to anybody, with 51% of the vote. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in at second with 21.3%, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, also former UN ambassador, came in at 3% with 19.1, I'm sorry, came in at third place with 19.1% of the vote. And businessman Vivek Ramaswamy came in fourth with 7.7% of the vote. Ramaswamy dropped out just after Trump was projected to win. Trump won every county except for one. Nikki Haley took Johnson County by one single vote over Trump. Johnson County usually goes for Democrats, and it is the most college-educated county in Iowa. And lastly, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson has dropped out of the Republican primary after receiving only 0.2% of the vote in Iowa. And to be perfectly honest with you, I forgot who's running, and I'm sure pretty much all of you can say the same thing. But that is actually all I have for you guys right now. Sorry, this uh, week I'm kind of cutting it a little bit short. I'm actually recording this on Friday as opposed to Saturday just because I'm going to be busy tomorrow and I don't know if I'll have the time to sit down and record. So I'm sure stuff will happen on Saturday. Uh, it's been a pretty busy, really past few months. So uh, yeah, whatever happens on Saturday, tomorrow, I will be sure to include that in the next episode. So again, thank you guys for bearing with me. I don't want to cut this short, but again, I don't know if I'll have time to record tomorrow. So I'll hit you guys on the back end for next episode. I want to thank you guys for supporting this podcast. Of course, all your support means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We are also on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again on Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Substack. All those links can be found in the show notes below. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. And I will see you guys soon.